0: Chapter 13 of Flemington. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nan Dodge. Flemington by Violet Jacob. Chapter 13 The Interested Spectator. As James Logie dashed back to his men to meet this unexpected attack, he left Flemington lying with his face to the bank and his back towards the river. He was so close to the edge of the island that his hair rested on the wet sand, permeated by the returning tide coming up the Esk. James's whole mind had gone back like a released spring to its natural preoccupation, and he almost forgot him before he had time to join the brisk affray that was going on. But though Archie lay where he fell and was as still as a heap of driftwood, it was only a few minutes before he came to himself. Perhaps the chill of the damp sand under his head helped to revive him. Perhaps the violence of the blow had been broken by the sod against which he had been hurled. He stirred and raised himself, dazed, but listening to the confused sounds of fighting that rang over Inch His head hurt him, and instinctively he grubbed up a handful of the cold wet sand and held it to his brow. His wits had not gone far, for there had been no long break in his consciousness, and he got on his feet and looked round for the best means of escape. James knew all, that was plain enough, and on the issue of the skirmish his own liberty would depend, if he did not get clear of the island at once. HE WENT BACK ROUND THE BEND, AND LOOKING UP THE SHORE HE SAW A COUPLE OF THE STEPPING-STONES, WHICH WERE ONLY HALF COVERED BY THE TIDE. IN THE MIDDLE OF THE CHANNEL THEY HAD DISAPPEARED ALREADY, BUT AT EITHER EDGE THEY LAY VISIBLE LIKE THE TWO ENDS OF A PARTLY SUBMERGED CHAIN. BLOOD WAS TRICKLING DOWN HIS FACE, BUT HE WASHED IT OFF AND MADE HASTILY FOR THE CROSSING, Wading IN. THE Esk WAS NOT WIDE JUST THERE, it was far deeper than he had fancied it, and he stumbled along, churning up the mud into an opaque swirl through which he could not see the bottom. He climbed the further bank, wasting no time in looking behind him, and never stopped until he stood, panting and dizzy, on the high ridge of land from which he could overlook Inchbrayock and the harbour and town. He was a good deal exhausted, for his head throbbed like a boiling pot and his hands were shaking. He lay down in a patch of winds, remembering that he was on the skyline. He meant to see which way the fortunes of war were going to turn before deciding what to do with himself. Thanks to chance, his business with Captain Hall was not finished, nor even begun. But as things seemed at present, Captain Hall might be a prisoner before the leisure which had been the subject of his own jibes that morning should arrive. The vessel's guns had roared out again as he struggled up the steep, but there had been silence on the island, and even the rattle of musketry had now stopped. Something decisive must have taken place, though he could not guess what it was, and he was too far away to distinguish more than the moving figures in the graveyard. He was high enough to see the curve of the watery horizon, for fairydon Village was some way below him his view was only interrupted by a group of firs that stood like an outpost between him and the land's end he lay among his friendly wind bushes staring down on the strait if james were victorious he knew that there would soon be a hue and cry on his own tracks but though alive to the desirableness of a good start in these circumstances he felt that he could not run while there remained any chance "'of laying the whole of his report before Captain Hall. "'He thought, from what he had seen of the man, "'that the less he was reckoned with by his superiors, the better. "'But it was not his business to consider that. "'As he turned these things over in his mind, "'his eyes were attracted to Dial Hill, "'upon which the sudden sign of a new turn of events could be read. "'He could see the group of men with the guns "'below the flagstaff which crowned its summit.' and what now attracted his attention was a dark object that had been run up the ropes, its irregular outline flapping and flying against the sky as it was drawn frantically up and down. Flemington was blessed with long sight, and he was certain that the two sharp-cut ends that waved like streamers, as the dark object dipped and rose, were the sleeves of a man's coat, He saw a figure detach itself from the rest and run towards the seaward edge of the eminence. Farrier, for he supposed now that Farrier was on the hill, must be signalling out to sea with his makeshift flag. He half raised himself from his lair. The cold grey-green of the ocean spread along the world's edge, broken by tiny streaks of foam as the wind began to freshen and beyond the fir-trees seen through their stems, the reason of the activity on Dial Hill slid into sight. A ship was coming up the coast, not a couple of miles out, and as Flemington watched her, she stood inlandward as though attracted out of her course by the signals and the sound of firing in Montrose Harbour. She was too far off for him to distinguish her colours, but he knew enough about shipping to be certain that she was a French frigate. "'He dropped back into his place. "'Whilst these sensational matters were going forward, "'he did not suppose that anyone would think of pursuing him. "'The fact that the rebels were signaling her in "'suggested that the stranger might not be unexpected, "'and in all probability she carried French supplies "'and Jacobite troops. "'The likelihood of an interview with Captain Hall "'grew more remote. "'The frigate drew closer.' Soon she was hidden from him by the jutting out of the land. Another shot broke from the venture, but the quick reply from the island took all doubt of the issue of the conflict from Archie's mind. James was in full possession of the place, and the surprise must have been a failure. Archie watched eagerly to see the ship arrive in the river mouth. It was evident that Hall, from his position under the south shore of the strait, had not seen her yet. Presently she rounded the land and appeared to the hundreds of eyes on the quays, a gallant, silent, winged creature. A vivid apparition against the band of sea beyond the opening channel of the Esk. swept towards the town as though by some unseen impulse of fate. The shout that went up as she came into view rose to where Archie lay on the hillside. The tide was now running high, and she passed in under Dial Hill, her deck was covered with troops and the waving of hats and the cheers of the townspeople who were pouring along the further side of the harbour made the truth plain to the solitary watcher among the winds the venture sent a shot to meet her that fell just in front of her bows but although it was followed by a second that cut her rigging no great harm was done and she answered with a broadside that echoed off the walls of the town till the strait was in a roar. and had no time to subside before James's gun on Inch began again. Flemington could see that Hall's surrender could only be a matter of time. The newcomer would soon be landing her troops out of his range, and having done so would be certain to attack the venture from the Fereden side of the river. Half of Hall's men were on the island, which was in possession of the rebels. His vessel was damaged, and in no condition to escape to sea, even had there been no hostile craft in his way, and no dial hill to stand threatening between him and the ocean. The time had come for Archie to think of his own plight, and of his own prospects. He was adrift again, cut off even from the disorderly ship that had sheltered him last night, and from the unlucky sot who commanded her his best plan would be to take the news of Hall's capture to Edinburgh, for it would be madness for him to think of going to Perth, whilst his identity as a government agent would be published by Ferrier and Logie all over that part of the country. He was cast down as he sat with his hand to his aching head, and now that it had resulted in that fatal meeting, his own folly in going to the island seemed incredible. His luck had been so good all his life, AND AFTER THE MANY YEARS THAT HE HAD TRUSTED HER, THE JADE HAD TURNED ON HIM. HE'D BEEN TOO HIGH-HANDED WITH HER, THAT WAS THE EXPLANATION OF IT. HE HAD ASKED TOO MUCH. HE HAD BEEN OVERCONFIDENT IN HER, OVERCONFIDENT IN HIMSELF. FLEMINGTON WAS NEITHER VAIN NOR CONCEITED, BEING TOO HEARTILY INTERESTED IN OUTSIDE THINGS TO TAKE VERY PERSONAL POINTS OF VIEW. HE merely WENT STRAIGHT ON WITH THE JOY OF LIFE LIGHTING HIS PROGRESS. But now he had put the crown on his foolhardiness. He had had so many good things, strength, health, wits, charm, the stage of his stirring life whereon to use them, and behind that stage the peaceful background of the home he loved, filled with the presence of the being he most admired and revered on earth. But new lights had broken in on him of late, troublous lights playing from behind a curtain that hid unknown things. Suddenly he had turned and followed them, impelled by uncomprehended forces in himself, and it seemed that in consequence all around him had shifted, disintegrated, leaving him stranded. Once more as he watched, his anxious eyes on the scene below him, his heart full of his own perplexities, a last roar of shot filled the harbor, and then, On the venture he saw the flag hauled down. He rose and looked about him, telling himself that he must get as far from the neighbourhood of Montrose as he could in the shortest possible time. Sixty miles of land stretched between him and Edinburgh, and the only thing for him to do was to start by way of the nearest seaport from which he could sail for Leith. HE WAS A VERY DIFFERENT FIGURE FROM THE WELL-APPOINTED YOUNG MAN WHO HAD RIDDEN AWAY FROM ardguy's ONLY YESTERDAY, FOR HE WAS SOAKED TO ABOVE THE KNEES FROM wading IN THE ASK. BLOOD HAD DRIPPED ON HIS COAT FROM THE CUT ON HIS FOREHEAD, AND HIS HAIR AT THE BACK WAS CLOGGED WITH SAND. EXCITEMENT HAD KEPT HIM FROM THINKING HOW COLD HE WAS, AND HE HAD NOT KNOWN THAT HE WAS SHIVERING. BUT HE KNEW IT AS HE STOOD IN THE TEETH OF THE FRESH WIND. He laughed in spite of his plight. It was so odd to think of starting for Edinburgh from a wind bush. He turned southwards, determining to go forward till he should strike the road leading to the seaport of Aberbrothock. By sticking to the high ground he would soon come to it at the inland end of the basin, and by it he might reach Aberbrothock by nightfall, and thence take sail in the morning. This was the best plan he could devise, though he did not care to contemplate the miles he would have to trudge. He knew that the broken coast took a great inward curve, and that by this means he would be avoiding its ins and outs, and he wished that he did not feel so giddy and so little able to face his difficulties. He remembered that the money he had on him made a respectable sum, and realized that the less worth robbing he looked the more likely he would be to get to his journey's end in safety. He stepped out with an effort. Southward he must go, and for some time to come, Angus must know him no more. End of chapter 13